Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I'm your host, Ken Seymour, normally with your co-host, Richard Geiger, who is unfortunately out with a little bit of cold, phlegm, infestation of some kind. We won't speak too much of it, but he's, he'll be back with us here soon. But who I do have with us today is David Taylor. Uh, not to be confused with David Taylor or David Taylor, but this David Taylor is an author, a poet, a musician, producer, but most important, at least to me, uh, uh, an awe-inspiring uh, comic book and uh, fantasy fan of great magnitude come to talk with us today about some of the work that he's been involved with and some of the things that he loves and that I love and that we all love. Thank you for coming with us today, David. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on the show. Well, our, I would like to say that our, uh, our listeners are probably spread across a, a large swath of, of different types of individuals that may or may not be familiar with who you are or what you've done uh, in the past. So I was hoping to, to start just kind of with what you're doing right now to kind of to put a, a face to the name and, to, and what's going on. Now, I know right now you've been working on the, the Nephilim Wars. Was that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'll just give you a brief synopsis. Uh, I'm a number one seller in Amazon, and then my novel, Lucifer, Soldier, Serpents, and Sin, went number one in three different countries for me. And I've been working on expanding the story world. Uh, so I've got novels, I've got coloring books, I've got an RPG I'm going to release very soon where you can play as characters from the book. And so the Nephilim Wars comes out of that same story world. Uh, the reason it fascinates me so is because superpowers are really real. And for people that don't know what Nephilim are, they are the children of angels and humans. And in the Bible, that's what Goliath was. Uh, he comes from that line, the one that King David killed. Goliath was about nine feet tall. And so the offspring of humans and angels really had real life superpowers, enhanced senses, super strength, that whole thing. So it's actually really real. So that's kind of what got me fascinated in that. So I'm making a comic book set at the end of the 30th century, uh, kind of a fantasy setting about the second time uh, angels and humans start uh, hooking up and making babies and everything that comes <laughs> along. That sounds uh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Really excited about that, and uh, so and that's just a very small piece of what I'm doing, what I've got coming out just this year alone. <laughs> well, let me ask you a little bit of kind of you know we've we've uh, interacted a little bit in the past uh, on Twitter and uh, and you know kind of gone back and forth with our our shared. Uh, love of comic books and things like that. I always like to kind of go into the origins of where where the joy for this kind of uh, this this plethora of of uh, fantasy and science fiction and 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 all this great stuff is coming from. Where did that start for you? For me, it started around four years old. My father. Uh, bought me some comic books. I learned to read on three things. I learned to read on the Bible, on comic books, and the newspaper. And my father introduced me to two out of three. And I've loved all three ever since, still love them now. So when I first saw superheroes, I just fell in love with them. I fell in love with the idea of being able to do more than normal humans can do. 
I fell in love with the costumes. I fell in love with the villains. I just loved everything about it. So, so right around four years old, my father would take me to the newsstand, and I still love the smell of fresh newspaper, of fresh comics. Uh, there's something about fresh printed stuff has a very particular smell. I love that. Just reminds me of my dad on Saturday mornings. And um, so, yeah, so it's just been a lifelong passion for me. Yeah, I, I kind of know what you're talking about. I maybe didn't start quite so early, but uh, just the, uh, the the fond memory of my first uh, Incredible Hulk comic book that I uh, did not treat quite as well as I probably should have because I was still learning the uh, the that I would want to keep hold of these things over an extended period of time. But reading it and rereading it until the outer cover uh, fell off of it and the pages were worn and and yellowed with the sun and it's just kind of fun um so you've got this you've got this interest that uh you developed uh early for this does, does this kind of play into a little bit because i mean you've done quite a bit uh, uh quite a bit of stuff uh in an array of different fields between writing and uh and music and and some of the other things that that you've uh that you've done did i want to have my hands in as many things as possible or did you kind of develop in stages as it went along was some of this part of like training in school uh i'll be honest with you it's a little bit of all of that i never set out to put my hands in many pots it really was more internal it just came from the inside out there was some things that just kind of got birthed inside of me and then I wanted to see them live out here. Uh, um, my training is in, uh, I have one degree in business, one degree in music, and then I have, I'm a certified music business instructor and I'm a certified music producer, but I've been writing since I was around six. So what happened was I finally kind of got my life to the point where I could begin to release the content because you know, in the 20th century, Without a major publishing a record deal, there's pretty much no way. Then the 90s hit and everything changed. Uh, everything became digital, uh, the rise of the internet, uh, you know, the, the idea of bands started to go away. We were much more into rap music and sampling. And then the whole separation with image and the creator revolution. So now we live in a time where there's not really a barrier to entry for you to really release the content that you want to create. So things kind of came together at this point in my life where I could finally, I had enough space in my life and also the vehicles were there to put this content out. But I never really set out to say, I'm gonna do a million different things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. what what was the, uh, what was the, uh, that particular, uh, uh, what was that particular book about? Lucifer Soldier Serpent King Book One is about how the war in heaven got started. And again, it's multi layered. Uh, people always ask me, the question I get asked the most is what inspired you to even think about something like that? And the answer to that question is uh, a couple of things. First thing was, I wonder what would it be like if you were the coolest of the cool kids, so popular and everybody knew you, and then you did something so awful that took that life away from you, what would that look like? Then there's a scripture, Luke 10, 18, where the Lord says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And that's all he says. Mm -hmm. 
So I wondered, what did that look like and when did it happen? Uh, and then I began to dig into deeper issues about why do bad things happen to good people? And I realized that that is a universal human experience. That every human, regardless of your faith beliefs, no matter what they are, you come to a point in your life where you say, why God, why? Why did this happen to me? Or why is there evil in the world? And how do you reconcile the concept of a loving, good and just God with the, the type of terrible things we see on a daily basis? And so I was really moved to dig into the origin of how all that happened and how did that get to earth and how did we as humans uh, get involved? So it's really about that progression. How do, why would angels rebel? How can you be an angel in heaven and be so dissatisfied with your life that you stage a coup? And then how did that fall to earth and how did we humans get involved? So that's the general idea behind the series. Hmm. So um, it, when I was looking, did you do uh, you do do not only like prose, but you do poetry as well. Yes, I do. So um, what, everybody's got their kind of influences on uh, whenever you're a writer, the things that you kind of try and develop out of or set yourself apart from. Poetry has always been something I've been interested in. Who are your favorite poets? Uh, Maya Angelou. Langston Hughes, and ironically, Stevie Wonder. Yeah, yeah. He's not, he's not a poet per se, but his uh, his lyrics, the the way he paints such a visceral picture with regular words, just just blows me away. So um, poetry is a very very different animal than prose or song lyrics, and one of the reasons. I tackled it besides just feeling like I, I had some poetry to write was I, I wanted to become a better writer. Each type of writing hones a different type of skill. And so the more you learn about different rhyme schemes and the more you learn about meters and weights and accents, the more sensitized you become to the type of language that you use and how characters speak. So uh, all the different kind of writing that I do feeds into trying to make me better in the other arenas. Well, there's definitely... And, oh, sorry. <laughs> so, I wrote poetry every Thursday. So, uh, I know you'll ask me later where can people go to check that out. Yes. They can check out on my YouTube channel, DT2 Author. And then my home website is davidtaylor2.net. It's the number two. davidtaylor2.net. So I release new poetry every Thursday at 10 a.m. And, and so people can check it out there if they want to take a listen. Well, like you're saying, uh, with, uh, with uh, the poetry and music having such an overlap, I mean, um, that had to have served you pretty well in terms of uh, the music that you would put together or potentially uh, keep an eye uh, on what to produce and what you would want to put together, right? Yes, uh, every every artist a true artist has to find their own voice but the way the masters always do it is they study what's going on before them they master that and then they kind of carve out their own space and so i always like to emulate successful people so i study uh just extremely successful people and uh, people that are just 
wordsmiths that are just masters of words. And so, you know, every year I want to grow, I want to become better. I want to put better stuff out there, you know. But you have to do it. Uh, that's another question I get asked the most, or I get asked quite often, by potential authors or poets. They say, you know, Dave, I have a, this book I've always wanted to write, you know, but how do I get started? What do I do? And the short answer is you have to do it. You have to do it. You are not going to get better if you don't put stuff out there. And many times the things that, that hang people up are they want it to be triple perfect. They want it to be without flaw. They want everybody to love it. They want perfect conditions to release it under. None of that is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's listening to this particular recording, I think they will believe that 100% as I attempt to stumble over you multiple times, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's never going to be a situation where... You feel like the work is perfect. You can get it to a point where you feel like it's the best representation of what you want. But even George Lucas went back and couldn't stop tweaking Star Wars because there's just more he wanted to do and say in that world. So, I mean, that's just part of what comes along with being a creative person. But you have to do it. You have to do it. You got to put it out there. You got to take your lumps. You got to let the chips fall, sink or swim. You gotta say what you're trying to say and say it well. And you know, that's the way you build a career. So in kinda kinda along those lines, I mean it seems like you've done quite a few interesting things. I have I have this list that uh, from what I was looking at when I was looking at your offerings on Amazon, it has that little section it's like about the author that you go through. And there were a couple of things that just kind of struck me as as interesting. And, and hopefully they're accurate. And if not, you can put them to put them to bed uh, okay. immediately. But uh, so one of the things that that it said was that you uh, worked with the James Taylor singers. I did. Uh, I made an original Christmas song called Magic Holiday, and I wrote it uh, very old school style. It's very much like a a combination of the Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown. Christmas CD, which is my absolute favorite Christmas <laughs> CD, and kind of a old school 40-ish bells kind of thing, so I went way, way back. Wow. And so so I wrote a song along that, and I hired them to come in and sing the backup, and it was great. It was really, really great. We used live bells, and uh, so uh, I wrote everything. I played a piano on it. I, it was really, really great because I wanted to write something that wasn't that was just a little bit more classic and timeless kind of from its inception. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was great working with them. And uh, uh, if you know anything about vocals, you know that every uh, vocalist has a very particular kind of sound. So yeah. there was a, a blend that I wanted to add from them, and so I got it uh, with the backup vocals. It was great. Yeah, I got I to I gotta say something like that is always... Is, is interesting to me the, the the chance to kind of work with people that have a, a certain level of talent like that, and and to to be able to kind of bask in it. it uh, I, I have to uh, I have to wonder what did you I mean because obviously you had to edit everything that's going through. Did you ever kind of get to a point? It's like well that's good and that's good, but I've got to, I've got to kind of choose between something. I've got to make this tweak, and I don't want to let any of this stuff go. Did you have any of those difficult choices? 
Yes. Uh, it's just like being a movie or a TV editor. You have so many takes, and then you got to pick the best take, or you got to do what we call comping. You have to put a take together that represents the best of the performances, and then you have to leave some stuff on the cutting room floor. And then when it gets in the final mix, one of the things you always have to be cognizant of is that nobody will hear it but you. The, the little stuff you're, you're listening for as a, as a sound engineer or a producer, you know, your audience is not going to pay attention to that. They don't care. about <laughs> 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 the overall finished product, you know, how it makes them feel. But I tend to be kind of meticulous. And so to give an example, one of the things that's a, a clear choice when you're recording vocals is your word endings. So if you end a word on a T or a P or a B or a K on a plosive, everybody has to say the word the same way and end it at the same time. Otherwise, you get a bunch of different endings on your track, which mm. sounds really messy, unless you want a messy sound. So if you're going to sing the word wait, everybody has to sing the word wait and end it at the same time. So that's one of the things you have to think about. Otherwise, you get wait Machine gun. Right. So if that's what you're going for, that's cool. But if you want a tighter sound, there's there's all different kinds of ways to shape vocals. You know, if you want to make them a cushion, if you want to make them invisible, if you want to make them stand out, want to give them a little bit more bite, there's all kind of stuff to do. But to, to answer your question, yes. Yes, I did have to say, you know, got to let this go. I mean, you do that all the time. You do that all the time. That's why you tend to make different mixes because there's just different things you hear and you can't fit it all in uh, one particular mix. So, so you've had the, you know, you've had the, that really kind of awesome thing. I also saw that you worked with uh, uh, Cuba Gooding Sr. Yes, yes, yes. Put him back on the charts before he passed. Uh, he had been on the charts in 30 years and we put it back on. We did a cover uh, with the same artist I did Magic Holiday with. His name is Richard Kincaid. Richard Kincaid is an adult contemporary artist. So we did a duet with him and Cuba Gooding Sr. of Donny Hathaway's This Christmas. But I did my own arrangement. So I studied and worked very hard to come up with something unique. And so I have a, kind of a unique arrangement of that. But yeah, so we did the, that song and it went really well. And it was really fun meeting him and listening to his stories. He has so many stories about life and about his career and just a fun guy to be around. A lot of energy, a lot of energy. And, um, and it was just fun to watch him work. I learned a lot just watching him work and uh, so, yeah, that was a really great experience. But he really enjoyed it, too. He really kind of, we really kind of struck up a friendship, and we kept in, in touch after that, and we're really uh, looking forward to working together again. So I was really sorry to hear of his passing. That really made me sad, because we had talked about some plans to do some future work. Yeah. Um, how did you manage to get that kind of a, a opportunity? Did you just kind of run into him? Was it... Uh... Yeah, contacts you kind of mutually had, friends, family? Uh, no, we had a manager promoter who had those contacts. So as we were uh, promoting the material I was doing with Richard, we had an opportunity to connect with other people, you know, other professionals, other celebrities, other artists. And we're really kind of looking at 
who we thought would be a good fit for what we were trying to do. For example, when I was doing Richard's second CD, I worked with the legendary Dave Cos. Ah. Now, Dave Cos is so good, he plays like he was born with a saxophone in his hand. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, he's so good, he will make you cry. He's so good. He made me want to go back and do nothing else but practice my piano for like eight hours a day. He was so good. He was so good. So, yeah, so it was really a matter of trying to find an artist that we thought would be a really good fit with what we were trying to do. So that's how we got in touch with Cuba. Like I said, we really hit it off pretty much from the time I first talked to him. We had a long conversation that we met in person and we laughed and actually have uh, an interview I did with him up on one of my channels as well because we talked about his life and all that. So it was, you know, it was just a great experience, just a great experience. That sounds like it'd be pretty, pretty awesome. I, uh, uh, it, it's these little, these little snippets, these tidbits for anybody like myself who's not uh, in the music industry in any way, shape or form that uh, and there's... It, almost like this shroud of mystery around. It's like, well, how does that happen? I mean, obviously you've got in your mind as a listener, it's like, okay, I see, I see these people performing. I know they're obviously they've got to practice. They've got to you know, come together. They probably have somebody that's, you know, representing them, but how does this sort of stuff happen? How do you run into these people? These, uh, what seems like, you know, instances of chance, uh, are they, are they really chance or are they orchestrated? How, how cool is it to just get these 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 moments where you can kind of touch another person that you admire so much? Yeah, it's um, it's it's really you kind of have to network, you kind of have to get connected, and get you know they talk about six degrees of separation. You kind of have to get yourself connected to the people that know the people you want to work with. Uh, but it's uh, how can I put it? It's a uh, a lot of different, a lot of different content being offered to people, and then they have to pick which projects they want to do. So that's why we were really honored to get Cuba to say yes to our project, and uh, that's why we had such a great time because he was into it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, so we talked about some of the big things, and then I had a couple of things that uh, made me made me giggle a little bit, you know. So. So it also says that you created some music, what, for McDonald's? I did. That was my first gig out of school. Uh, way back, uh, I just graduated uh, from music school, and uh, I did a national commercial campaign when they were doing the Brother Bear movie. Oh. So uh, we were working on me and another uh, producer. He brought me in on the project because he really liked my sound. So I ended up producing the spot. I played guitar on it, and I'm actually on the track saying I'm loving it. So <laughs> it was great. It was great. That's got to be a, a very interesting feather in the cap to cut, you know, that, that icebreaker. So you're just out of school. It's like, well, I've, I've done work for McDonald's. <laughs> that's yeah, that, that's it, been awesome. It was really great. It, was, it ended up being more than I anticipated. Like I said, I got to play and sing and produce. So that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right. So we've we've got kind of this grounding. So we know we know that you've got this grounding in music and and writing and everything. So let's let's take it into the geeky realm a little bit. Um, okay. So 
so obviously you've got this uh, this this love of comic books. You've been reading for a long time. What are your what are your current favorites? What are your you know all time favorites? I mean, uh, we got that that little icon that we see with Cap Shield. Does that mean that you're a Captain America kind of guy? <laughs> well, uh, let me say first off, uh, I, I'm not one of those people that says I'm a Marvel guy or I'm a DC guy. I'm a superheroes guy. Yeah, and I. I'm a good stories guy, so I don't do that dividing up into camps thing. Um, the game has changed because now we have superhero content in so many mediums. Where be before it was just comic books and an occasional movie, and most of them were lame. <laughs> now most people are being introduced to their favorite superheroes through TV and movies. So for me, my top two characters have always been. Batman and the original Captain Marvel. I love Batman. There's nothing about Batman I don't like, and I love the original Captain Marvel. Uh, the reason being is because, like everybody else, I see myself in them, and I kind of see life the same way Bruce Wayne does because I've been through similar things. I've, I've been through things where I was just on the ground bleeding for no reason at all, so life kind of taught me a lesson. And so, you know, I, I kind of live vicariously through Batman, you know, just like everybody else. And I love Captain Marvel because Billy was able to deal with his challenges in life without without becoming bitter. He's kind of the polar opposite. And he has, you know, the ability to skip puberty. He doesn't have to go through puberty. He can just go from being a boy to being a man, which is totally awesome. And, and uh, I loved Greek mythology as a child. So when I first encountered Captain Marvel and saw that he's powered primarily by Greek mythological figures, I fell in love with him too. Um, in terms of the current scene, uh, I love movie Captain America. Chris Evans has won me over. Chris Evans has reached Christopher Reeve levels of convincing. So we all eventually believe that Christopher Reeve was Superman. Yeah. So we all believe that Chris Evans is Captain America. There's no going back now. No, no, that's fabulous. And and could you could you have believed that he would be able to do that back in the days of the Fantastic Four movies when he's when he's being uh, uh, the Human Torch instead? Uh, no, I was I was very skeptical. I was very much against it. I was like, why in the world would you pick him? be cap and I've been proven a hundred percent wrong uh, he could not possibly be a better Captain America and will obviously be remembered for that I think more than the Fantastic Four movies but I mean like Christopher Reed like uh, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman they capture the essence of the character they make it look like if the character walked off the screen into real life they would really look and act like that Whenever you have writing, acting, and directing, as well as costuming and lighting, that comes together to really, really make your comic uh, come alive in three dimensions, it has such an impact. If you think about it, there's no actor in the Superman world that ever gets away from their character. Like, you know, Jimmy Olsen from Superman the Movie, or Margot Kidder, or even Jeff East, who played Clark Kent as a teenager, or uh, uh, Dean Cain. Terry Hatcher, or Kirk Allen, or, or, you know, there's no one, Brandon Routh, there's no one that's been a part of Superman's world 
that isn't a part of it for the rest of their acting lives. And people always want to see them reprise their character at some point. It's the most amazing thing. And that's the impact of comic books. That's the impact of making these characters come to life. And so, uh, so yeah, so that's another reason I love them because people say they're fictional characters. True, it's true that they are, but they have a real impact. They have a real impact out here in the real world. And sometimes when you don't have anybody else to look up to, you can open your favorite book and just read about your favorite character, just doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. How do you feel about the translations from some some of the stories that originated in the comics to how they've been presented within the movies? I mean, obviously, some things have to be changed. Some things have to be tweaked. Do you think, in general, they've done a pretty good job with that? Or uh, is there a couple of areas that you kind of wish they would maybe have steered in a slightly different direction? Well, I'm always consistent. I'm not a comics purist because I understand each medium is different. You cannot direct. It's like translating a language. Mm. Uh, in every language, there are not exact analogs or translations of the words you're trying to say. So translating comic material is just like that. So comic books are two-dimensional, multicolored in panels. Okay. When you want to translate that into three dimensions out here in real life, live action, Everything's not going to translate. But what I am, so I'm not a comics purist. I'm a I'm a character purist, which means at the very least, whatever adventure you tell, you should get the core of the character right. That's what is going to make me you go you know go yay or nay. So for some reason that I can't figure out, a lot of people don't understand that comics are a visual medium. So they make the character not look like what they look like in the comics and they think it's not that big of a deal, or they completely miscast them because they don't understand who the character is, and they think that any actor can play them. So, so I kind of take it on a case-by-case -case basis. So our, our, our biggest success stories have been Christopher Reeve and Superman the movie, the first two, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman, Chris Evans, Captain America, Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark. Um, I actually liked both Norton and uh, a Ruffalo as Banner and the Hulk, but they're two different kinds of, you know, presentations. But I think they both work. Yeah. And um, I thought James Marsden was a good choice for Cyclops, but I thought how they wrote him, they just never gave him any kind of chance as a character, you know, to even win on any level. I didn't like that. Um, it, it's amazing how. Uh, they don't seem to be able to get Batman right in live action. Batman, the animated series, got him right on every possible level. Yeah. So you have you have a blueprint, but for some reason they keep giving us a Batman that is one dimension of Batman. So one Batman, you know, maybe focuses on the fighting. Another actor story maybe focuses on the tech. We've never really seen the detective in live action. We've never gotten a really good martial arts scene. We got that warehouse scene finally with Affleck. That was good. But we've never really seen Batman as a martial arts master or a weapons master. So, you know, there's still, that just amazes me 
And uh, it also amazes me how they don't seem to understand Superman either. They don't seem to understand what he's come to represent, what he means to people, and how important it is to portray him accurately. And uh, so, you know, so those things have been kind of hit and miss. Uh, the Netflix stuff, uh, I like Daredevil. I like The Punisher the best because um, uh, Bernthal convinces me viscerally that if Frank Castle was real, he'd be like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if Frank Castle was really out there, I, I completely believe he'd be like Bernthal's interpretation of it. So you really have to get behind, you really have to get behind the, the visual look of the character, the motivation of the character, and what they've come to mean to people. Like, for some reason, we still don't have a blonde Barry Allen. I can't figure that out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it seems like a, a small thing to, to some people, but it, it, it does become important. It really does. It does. And when you get it right, you get classic stuff. You get stuff like The Winter Soldier. You get stuff like that first Iron Man movie. They, they did so much in their first Iron Man movie. They completely honored the comic's origin. They gave us three developments of armor. We got the original armor, the gold armor, and the red and gold armor all in the same movie. Yeah. We got the relationship between Tony and Pepper. We got Tony realizing how fragile life was and having a real uh, change of heart, you know, pun intended. We got uh, Tony's genius. We got, it was so much was done. That's why it's a, an instant classic. So when you really dig deep and you really have the right production team and you really have people that have done their homework and they get what the character means, they write it right, they cast it right, they costume it right, you're going to get a classic. And when you ignore all that stuff, you're going to get something that's never going to perform the way you wanted it to. It's never going to stick in people's minds the way you wanted it to. What did you think about the change of actor with who played Rhodey? I, I, I feel like I'm kind of in the minority of all the people that I've talked to. I, I love both actors a lot. But I always thought the the roadie from the first film just felt more like him to me. Okay, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. That's how I felt too. I felt like Terrence Howard. See, the thing about Terrence Howard's roadie versus Cheadle's roadie is um, Cheadle just basically has more of a sidekick vibe. But Terrence Howard's roadie was always in Tony's face about his choices and his character, who he was as a person. And that wrote really challenged him to think, think about what you're doing. And that's what makes the character so compelling. So I really wanted to see him given a suit of armor, what would your choices be? Because then you become the biggest hypocrite. You've just been a whole movie chastising Tony, but once you get a taste of that power, what would you do? But, but Cheadle's Rhodey comes across as much more like a sidekick, a little bit more passive, much more kind of just kind of like going with the flow. And that's not what Terrence Howard's roadie did. Yeah. He challenged Tony on every turn, so I really wanted to see that. Well, so. and, the, and the other side, the way they wrote uh, roadie uh, later, like uh, in um, Age of Ultron, where they had him almost seem to be needy, to I, I, I need to be recognized as, as, as a, a, a hardcore kind of, uh, ass kicker, which was never what the character was in my mind. He was the 
He was the silent, I get it done. I'm about uh, thinking about things pragmatically. So I, you think what you want to think, and I'm going to make what needs to happen happen. Well, Rhodey is to Tony as John Stewart is to Hal Jordan. Definitely. And so that's kind of what I wanted to see because John is pragmatic in that same way you described, and you're right about Rhodey, and he's not, uh, like you said, he's not needy. He doesn't need the kind of things that Tony does. He doesn't need his ego fed in the same way. He doesn't need the accolades. He just needs to know at the end of the day, I did my job. I can relate to that kind of man because that's the kind of man my father was. So, yeah, you know, I'd like to see that translation. Um, But again, Every writer is going to make choices. Every director is going to make choices. And every actor is going to make choices. And you kind of have to, you know, it's, it's going to go the way it goes and you decide whether or not you like it. Um, when you're dealing with, you know, Joss Whedon in particular, he always has particular uh, trademarks. So, you know, it's going to be a lot of snarky dialogue. Yeah. It's going to be really sarcastic. You know, somebody's going to die. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus on whoever the Buffy character is because there's always a Buffy in Whedon's stories. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know what I mean? And so, uh, so that was Wanda Maximoff. They never called her Scarlet Witch in the film, in Age of Ultron anyway, which I thought was really interesting. But um, so, you know, so, so everybody, you know, you always have to deal with whatever your production team is going to do with the characters. Um, and you know how they see them, and then sometimes what people do is they they you know it's going to sound funny, but they actually kind of make their own fan fiction, which isn't the same as trying to honor the characters. It's not the same thing. Fan fiction is where you say I've always wanted to see this, so I'm going to make them do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so yeah, but. Fortunately, Captain America has been consistent in giving us a real through line. And, you know, they pushed it a little too far, however, in Civil War. Because Cap started getting reckless and started caring about nothing but Bucky, which I thought was a little too far. Yeah, that, 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 he always has the, that, that greater good in mind. Yeah. Yes. So, okay. Could, so I, oh, sorry. Could be, there's no one that could be created to be a symbol of a nation that would think that's small. Yeah. So if you, you have the weight of a nation on you and the whole world's looking at you and you're sent into battle and you're sitting in front of the troops and you're sent uh, you know, to the president because you have to represent an ideal, there's no way even for your best friend that you wouldn't understand that you know, some of the decisions he made in Civil War just didn't make any sense. I felt like they were out of character. That just went a little too far for me. Yeah, I think part of that may have been that they were trying to find a way to plug as much of the story from the comic as they could into into the movie, and certain things weren't going to fit because of choices that they made in the previous films and the lead-up, and they couldn't recreate the like couldn't recreate the the massacre that was caused by the new warriors and the comic having to switch that that wasn't too bad but some of the other dominoes they they it felt like they had to come up with some compelling reason that he would 
that he would have a difference of opinion rather than just the ideal of the thing, because that's what he's always been about is the ideal of the thing. Well, there were two different, telling two different stories in the same movie. One movie was the search for Buck. Another movie was the world's reaction to the Avengers. Yeah. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same movie. No. They just kind of happened at the same time. So okay, so and I got to touch back on one other thing because you're talking about Captain Marvel being one of your uh, favorite characters of all time. Um, so, Emma, while you're not into the putting in divisive camps, are you in, in the camp of it is Captain Marvel and not Shazam? <laughs> it is definitely Captain Marvel to me. I will never call him Shazam. <laughs> I agree. Shazam is the wizard's name. I, I've posted that so many times on Twitter. You know, I, I just, I, I don't understand it, but you're never going to get me to call him Shazam. That's a new 52 character that's based on the original Captain Marvel, but that's not his name. That's the wizard's name. Yeah. What do you think about the, the, the movie coming forward? Do you think there's a chance that it'll be su surprisingly good? Uh, I think it's going to do well, but it's not the movie that a lot of us wanted to see. Yeah. A lot of us have been waiting all these years to see the original Captain Marvel and everything that comes along with that. And so, uh, you know, I'm disappointed that we're not going to get that. But um, I think that it's an attempt to kind of create a Spider-Man Homecoming vehicle. Because when you watch Spider-Man Homecoming, Spider-Man Homecoming is aimed directly at if you're a teenager now. And if you're a teenager right now, then everything about that movie resonates with your life because it is very much set in contemporary times and everything about the culture of the movie is to speak to people that are in their teens now. So I think that the Shazam movie is, is Warner Brothers' attempt to create that phenomenon. That, that could still, I, I can hope, because a, a tonal shift would be good. And I think they started that with, with uh, Aquaman to a certain extent. Um, uh, they, they they need to, to bring it back into uh, brighter areas, I think. And that I, I hope that this is, is a way to be able to do that. Well, you know, the, the problem was thinking that because Batman is dark and because darkness works for him, that that could be extrapolated to every other character. And that's just not true. No. Once again, if you, if you study your characters, you know that Batman, when he first started, he was super dark. I mean, he was dealing with supernatural stuff. The Monk is one of my favorite villains of his. Batman was, you know, firing silver bullets in the werewolves. He was killing vampires. <laughs> he was, you know, taking thugs down. He was using guns. Batman was super dark way back when he was first out. He was an extreme intense figure. And I love him that way. And then he got lined up. And so he kind of goes back and forth from generation to generation. But... The character was born in tragedy, and uh, the tragedy split Bruce Wayne's psyche and created something dark and violent and rage-filled inside of him because it was born in a little boy that didn't have the power to strike back. What happened with Kal-El of Krypton was he lost his parents, but he was raised, surrounded by love, 
someone took him in and didn't treat him like an alien. They didn't treat him like a science experience. They, a science experiment. They treated him like their own son. They loved him. They made him feel normal. They gave him a place to be. And Superman is so motivated by the love he saw in the Kents until he was raised to be a servant to serve with his powers. And Clark tries to help even when he loses his powers because that's who he was raised to be. So it's two different reactions to a similar beginning. But you cannot, therefore, extrapolate that because Batman works dark, that Flash has to be dark, the Green Arrow has to be dark, the Wonder Woman has to be dark, Red Tornado has to be dark, Supergirl has to be dark. Yeah, no. No, 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 no. So if they're, you know, at the end of Justice League, we had kind of a wink to the Superman-Flash races. And those have always been just, you know, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely turning up in Aquaman. Aquaman, the colors alone, the, the color palette, the cinematography is so vibrant in Aquaman. So, yeah, they're, they seem like to be, they're making an effort to just lighten things up all the way around. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best for that. I, I didn't enjoy the Aquaman movie as much as I hoped that I would, but I saw what they were trying to do, or at least I think that I did, and I'm, I'm fully supporting that. I'm, 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 I'm hoping uh, that this will be uh, the, the, the first steps in, in a fun tradition. But that kind of kind of takes us into kind of what we were talking about a little bit before we got started here about the way that people react to these movies and to the comics and everything and how how fans are in a slightly different place than they have been in the past. What do you think has changed? What is what is the new place of the fan? What is what is our responsibility as the consumer of this media that we need? Uh, what what is it? What is our part that we need to do? Do you think? Well, uh, again, that's a multi-layered question. Um, to uh, to give you my general answer, I have always believed and still believe that the geek community is one of the best communities on earth. The reason for that is because there aren't any barriers to entry. So in other words, uh, there's no gender, age, ethnicity, socioeconomic level, education level, geography, faith-based beliefs. It doesn't matter. We gather together because of our love for these characters and because of our love for these story worlds. That is something that you want to preserve. That's a blessing. That's not something that you want to destroy or corrupt. I've been saying that for years, and I'm going to keep on saying it, that we need to appreciate the fact that we have a community where it's not about where you come from. It's about we enjoy these characters in common. And that's one of the few places left on Earth where that can happen. Unfortunately, what has happened is that much of the political and social undercurrents of our day, at least in America, I don't know how the rest of the world feels, but most of the political and social undercurrents of the day, if you look at, what is this, 2019, if you look at, uh, I'll say the last five to 10 years, uh, our nation seems to be becoming increasingly more divided because people are planting their flags and what they believe And they used to say, this is what I believe. Now they say, 
you're wrong for not believing what I believe and I'm going to hurt you. And so people have kind of gone to the extreme. And so everywhere I go, I try to remind people that, that the unity of community that we have is worth more than petty squabbles. We can just agree to disagree. Um, we can just say, okay, well, I don't see it that way, but we don't have to get ugly. We don't have to do personal attacks. That's why when I do my flash chat every week, I say no personal attacks. We're going to talk about the show, but we're not going to attack each other because I just will not allow that on my timeline or anything that I'm hosting. We're not going to attack each other. We're just going to you know, state our opinions, even if we do so vehemently with passion. That's fine. <coughs> but, you know, so that's one layer. Another layer is, um, as an African-American, I'm also a Native American, there's this thing in American culture, uh, America does not like to acknowledge its ugly stepchildren. Some countries do, some countries don't, but our country very much just doesn't like to talk about or face or look at it's ugly stepchildren. And so one of the issues we're always dealing with in America is either actual disenfranchisement or perceived disenfranchisement. And what has happened now is that those flames have been fanned into a frenzy. So now everybody from every group or faction or background feels like, I'm supposed to get a turn. I'm supposed to get a voice. I'm supposed to get equal time for the spotlight. And that's what's caused so much of the anger and the tension because people have been led to believe that now. And then, then that sometimes causes uh, an overreaction and people make content about trying to be inclusive instead of telling a good story. And I maintain you can do both. And I also maintain that the geek community has always done both. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't understand these people that say we don't support female-led vehicles when we can go back to Linda Carter's Wonder Woman, uh, Lindsay Wagner's Bionic Woman, uh, uh, Lucy Lawless, Renee O'Connor, Zena Gabrielle, uh, Sigourney Weaver, Ellen Ripley, uh, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor, Goes uh, uh, all the way back to Sheena, I think, uh, being the first uh, female-led comic back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Buffy. Uh, there was even a Bionic Woman, Woman remake, which had a lot of potential. Uh, they didn't handle it well, but it could have really taken off. So that whole idea, when I hear people say that somehow, you know, just, just picking that as, you know, one of the topics, that somehow the geek community in particular hasn't supported female-driven stuff is just not true. Everybody uh, that loves the Adam West Batman love uh, Yvonne Craig's Batgirl. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody that disliked that incarnation of Batgirl because she was awesome. She, you know, we wanted to see more of her. Yeah. So, you know, and that's going way, way back. So that's what I mean when I say, so I'm a truthist. I'm about truth and facts. And I categor categorically reject the idea that we haven't supported female-led stuff. I love... Oh, I think I lost you. I love it. 
tells me, you know, I love that film. I watch those DVDs so much until I put on a All right, so, I, I think I lost the last just little bit of that. What was it that you were saying you loved? I said, I said, I love Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles. Oh, yeah. And I love, I love that show so much until I watched the DVD so much until I forgot that the Connors weren't real. <laughs> I would wake up and be like, man, I wonder what the Connors are. Like, oh, yeah, that's a TV show, David. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what do you think of the way some of the the uh, producers of the things that we have loved have handled it? I know there was a huge, um, a huge reaction when the all new, all different Marvel came out, and they shifted all of the different characters around, and there were there seemed to be again that kind of divisiveness that 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 uh, we don't particularly want to see our, our community to have seemed to be a little bit of that in there. What did you think about that, that attempt? Was it successful? Was it a failure? Was it, you know, kind of mixed somewhere in there? Well, everything is always based on two things. It's always based on your intentions and your results. I'm a firm believer, again, that you can do both. Uh, they could have launched a line that was about, shall we say, the next generation of heroes and not had to disparage or sideline or diminish the original heroes in any way. Yeah. If you want to have a next generation iron-suited character, next generation Nova, Captain America, next generation Thor, whatever it is that you want, go ahead on and create those characters and create a line that features those characters. You do not have to diminish or disparage or retire the original characters that people have loved for going on 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years. In 20 years, Superman's going to be 100. So I'm not trying to hear this knowing that we have to get rid of old characters because people have loved them for decades from generation to generation, number one. Number two, if those characters are strong enough they should be able to carry their own stories and their own line. If nobody is buying them, that kind of speaks for itself. If you want to say, well, we want to see this, we need to do this now, because this is where everything's going, fine, and do it. If nobody buys it, then, again, that kind of speaks for itself. I mean, Captain Marvel's having, like, her, her fifth relaunch, I think. Yeah. Like, her fifth series, you know. So, you know, if you, whatever world you want to make, that's the beauty of comic books. There, there are alternate Earths, alternate universes, else worlds, parallel dimensions, time travel. There's so many vehicles you can make up some stuff we haven't heard before. When they did Crisis on Infinite Earths, they had Superboy Prime shatter the barrier between dimensions. So, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of approaches you can take. But if you really want to launch a line based on the next generation of characters, I say go ahead on and do it. But if those, if those characters and those stories are popular, they ought to be able to stand on their own. If they're piggybacking on the originals, that ought to tell you something. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's, that's, definitely, that's my take on it. I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and, you know, there, there were certain aspects like the all new, all different Marvel. I, I, I liked the... Lady Sif as Thor storylines. I thought that was pretty solid. Um, 
I, I was like one of the ones I was most disappointed with was uh, they're they putting in Amadeus Cho into the into the Hulk story. I thought the Amadeus Cho character had such potential and so much just neat stuff just the way he was. I didn't I didn't know if it was really adding anything by trying to to, to put him into that position. Well, again, 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 depends on how stick, uh, close you want to stick to your original premise. Mm. Uh, Lee envisioned the Hulk as the Frankenstein monster, something that wasn't a monster by their own choice and something that would always be perceived as a monster. So the early stories, Hulk always said, they just won't leave Hulk alone. Because when you look like Hulk, many times the Hulk would steal away into the woods, almost like a Sasquatch or a Yeti, and try to be alone. And if they found him, they're going to open fire. And the Norton movie captured that beautifully. That's why I love it. So they captured that essence, that idea that when you're the Hulk, they're not going to leave you alone. But when you make him funny or young or sarcastic or... Trying to be popular or famous, or when you're trying to capture kind of the teen zeitgeist of the day and a Hulk based character, you have to change the premise. Mm -hmm. That's no longer about rage or uncontrolled transformations or looking different or trying to find some peace. That's about, you know, hey, I've got this cool other side. Let me just pop over and turn green and watch me do all this cool stuff. That's not the same idea. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's pretty much dead on the, the way that I was thinking on that. Well, we are coming close to the end of what I think is our attention span for the average uh, person that might listen to the show. Is there anything you kind of want to kind of wrap up with? Anything you want to plug or you want to make sure we get to before we go away? Yes. Uh, I want to plug my comic book, The Nephilim Wars, which you can find on my home website, davidtaylor2.net. Uh, when I get the comic done, obviously I'm going to send all my bonuses and goodies to all my supporters, but it'll be available for people to buy and always bring them with me to shows. And then I'm starting my own comic line. So I have so many things. If I could tell you the stories I have lined up, I cannot wait to get them in print. So that's happening. And also later this year, I'm going to release my Toxic Earth trilogy. <coughs> a Toxic Earth series is set in the future about an underground colony and uh, and all of the things that have happened between pretty much now, the late 21st century, and when we get to the future, and it's got a bunch of different characters. I'm really, really excited about it. So that's going to be my Toxic Earth series, and that's going to be dropping uh, maybe in the summer to fall. I'm not quite sure yet, but that's coming out this year, too. So the thing to do is to uh, check me out on davidtaylor2.net. Get on my alert list. I don't spam people because I hate spam. So I just let people know when I have something new coming out. And then follow me on Twitter at DT2 Comics Chat. I'm on there every day. And so I'm always letting people know what the latest thing is going on with me. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you coming. It's been wonderful talking to you. Hopefully we'll uh, get a chance to catch up again here down the road and see how uh, things have uh, turned out and get some more insight into some of your upcoming projects at that point. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. I could talk three more hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't don't challenge me because I think we might do that at one point. <laughs> uh, 
Also from our end, if you want to know what's going on with the rest of the Pudding universe, you of course can follow us on Twitter at Real Pudding Guys or on Facebook at Pudding Guys. Uh, stop by the website. We've got a forum section. If you have any comments on the episodes, any things that you think might be coming up, your opinions on movie reviews, put information in there. We will definitely respond to it. Thank you again for uh, coming to listen to our podcast, and we will see you again soon. Mm-hmm.